Welcome to City Life Online. You might be watching this on your laptop or your phone. You might be with your family and friends, or you, you may be alone. You, you might be a member of City Life, or maybe somebody from City Life gave you this link so you could join us tonight. Look, no matter how you got here, I just want to tell you, welcome. And you're viewing on a timely evening because we're launching a new series tonight called Me and My Big Mouth. And we're set to launch out of James chapter 1 tonight, verses 19 through 21. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And if you're taking notes, you can jot that down. And while you're doing that, I simply wanted to share from a, a story in history. And it's about the seventh president of the United States named Andrew Jackson. Maybe you recognize the name, maybe you recognize the face from the $20 bill. But again, he's the seventh president of the United States who fought in not one, but two wars the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812, and he lived to tell about it. And in becoming a, a, a vet of these wars, he didn't retire from a life of violence. He actually had a habit of challenging other people to duels at the drop of a dime. Matter of fact, while serving in the Senate, he challenged and killed another man in a duel for him accusing Andrew Jackson of cheating in a horse racing bet and insulting his wife. According to one biographer, Jackson had the reputation of a volcano that only the most intrepid or recklessly curious cared to see erupt. He was a serial duelist. He was addicted to duels. Right? And some put the number of duels that he challenged people to in the dozens, upwards of 100. And again, he lived to tell about it. Matter of fact, he lived to the ripe old age of 78 after this life of violence and died at peace in bed. And at his funeral, in spite of the enemies he made in life, again, he was the president of the United States. So this was a well-attended funeral. And joining him at his funeral and all these people was his pet parrot named Polly. Yes, it was a parrot, one of the parrots that would echo the words that were said by its owner around the house. And yes, as we just learned about his character, you can imagine that this didn't end well. Before the, the sermon could even get going at his funeral, all of a sudden a volcano of, of curse words and four-letter words erupted from the back of the funeral and heads turned as, again, there was just this chorus of cussing from this parrot in the back. They had to actually remove the parrot from its owner's funeral. Now, this is a, a wild story, and it's clearly very unique, but I share it for a couple of reasons. And the first is to ask the question, if all your words that you utter in the privacy of your home were uttered at your funeral, would you be at peace with that or horrified? If all your words were broadcast publicly, would you blush? Because again, this may be a very unique story, but it points to a universal truth. In Matthew 12, 36, Jesus says, I tell you this, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. Every single idle word. Now, for reference, maybe you just shrug this off and say, yeah, whatever. If all our words were put into print, the average result would be this. A single day's words would fill a 50 page book. In a year's time, the average person's words would fill 132 books of 200 pages each. Now, all of a sudden, this idea that God has a divine wiretap on all our conversations and he's going to judge our every word, it gets really real. Right? Our private, present 
words are going to have future consequences. There will be a day of reckoning for every word that we've spoken in our lifetime. And maybe you would say this all sounds like overkill from like an overbearing God. Why is it such a big deal? Because words are serious and they're to be taken seriously. In the book of Proverbs in the Bible, it says that words carry the power of life and death. And the reason I believe that this series is in season is where do we often let our guard down and take our mouth off safety? It's often when we step into the privacy of our own home. So the people we're around the most get the most hurtful words. The people we love the most often get our worst words. And we've been largely staying at home, sheltered in place. So again, I'm not sure there's a more timely subject for this season. And I don't know if there's a more universally relevant subject either, because we all struggle with this. None of us have mastered our words and our communication and how we use our tongue. And I'm not saying this as as false humility to make you feel better or make me feel better. This is Bible. James actually says in James chapter three, verse seven, that all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. There may be men who call themselves tiger kings, but there's no tongue king. Right. Because the tongue can't be tamed by any human. It's not some domesticated, uh, tamed animal we can just keep at home. No, it's a dangerous animal right? that needs to be kept behind a cage. So God put it in a cage called our mouth behind bars, which are our teeth, because it can be wild, even dangerous. So that begs the question, why? Why is it so hard to tame our tongues? And if no human can tame it, is there any hope? And how do we use it to speak life and not death, to help and not hurt, to 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 build up and not tear down? And this is why we'll be digging into this subject in this series for, for the better part of a month. And this isn't just practical self-help. It's deeply spiritual because God, he doesn't want to just be Lord over our hearts. God wants to be Lord over our lips. And when he transforms our hearts, that should transform our mouths. But tonight, let's get to the passage. It's James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. And it says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth. And the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. So the big idea this week as we open up this series, if you're taking notes, is this. Don't settle for being right. Seek to make things right. And this is key because we all have a little Andrew Jackson in us. This man loved to fight. He loved to duel. He loved to to have, have situations where it was me versus you. And we may not go around looking to fire or fire upon or, or kill other people, but in light of everything we just talked about with the power of words and the things we're going to talk about in the weeks to come, we should realize that we can do significant damage. But spirit-filled, Jesus-following disciples shouldn't love to fight. They should fight to love. Right? What do I mean by that? They, they should fight for truth when necessary, but they, they value winning people far more than winning an argument. 
Right, let me put it this way. We should be willing to fight when it's necessary, but far too many of us are itching to fight no matter what. You know, it wasn't the War of 1812 that Andrew Jackson served in, but in the movie that came out recently, 1917, it's about an order that was given to a soldier to take to the front lines, to call off an attack that was going to save thousands, numerous lives. And what's interesting is at the beginning when he's given this order, the general feels the need to warn him and say, make sure there are witnesses. Some men just like to fight. His concern was that some men would be willing to ignore this step to save lives out of an itch to fight. And my concern is that there are many in the church who have the same attitude when it comes to waging war with our words. Too many people are more interested in winning arguments than winning people. Again, we should be willing to fight for truth when it's necessary, but far too many of us are just itching to fight no matter what. And there's a big, massive difference. Because the Bible calls us ministers of reconciliation. And that means we aren't just reconciled vertically with God. We're called to be reconciled horizontally with those around us. And this job description as a minister of reconciliation means that we should be fighting for reconciliation, not resolved to fighting. And this has implications throughout life. Like, how do I stand down in a debate when my inner ja Andrew Jackson just wants to duel? How do I give up my need to be right with my spouse or coworker or neighbor or teammate, whoever? How do I give up my need to be right so that I can make things right? How do I fight for reconciliation rather than always scratching this itch to fight? And James gives us his recipe in the passage from chapter one that we just read, where he says, be quick to listen and slow to speak. You know, it's one of two juxtapositions that James gives us that we'll look at tonight. But this is the first. Quick to listen, slow to speak. It's catchy. It's quotable. Easy to remember. But the hard part, it's easier said than done. It goes against every impulse of our flesh. So let's take a longer look at what James says. He starts by saying everyone should be quick to listen. See, maybe you're familiar with Paul's letter to the church in Corinth in Scripture where he likens the body of Christ to a body. <laughs> he likens the church to a body, which is why we call it the body of Christ. And in this, he, he, he talks about how often we're one part of the body, but we want to be another part. And it doesn't take much looking around the body of Christ to realize that most people want to be God's mouthpiece. We've got a scripture or a platitude or nugget of wisdom locked and loaded for every situation and every person. Now, this isn't a problem when we're looking to maybe encourage a loved one or something like that. But it becomes a problem when we want to use these things to shout down people around us that maybe don't believe or think like we do. Right? But you know what's just as important as the mouth that far fewer people want to be is God's ears. Right, Psalm 116.2 says, because God bends down to listen, I will call out on him as long as I live. The revelation of God's goodness that sparked this statement of faith was not his voice or, or truth spoken or him addressing the situation. It was simply this revelation that God listens. He hears. And not just that, he, he cares. So the question is, do you? 
You know, God in the flesh demonstrated this same practice of listening. I've been reading through the Gospel of Mark this week, and I've been reminded of this fact that in some 60 plus conversations in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus asks no fewer than 50 questions. This is the all-knowing God in the flesh, right? This is Jesus who in some situations, right, he's reading the Pharisees' minds as the Bible says they're thinking on the other side of the room, and he addresses it. Jesus knows things. He doesn't need to ask all these questions. So why does he? I believe it's because he's modeling for us that we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, quick to ask questions so that we can show care, concern, compassion, empathy, and understanding, because those are all elements of love. May we be people that are quick to listen, because when we use our ears before our mouth, the second step becomes easier, which is simply be slow to speak. You know, Pastor Fred and I have had some laughs as we've started doing church online, because on the the platform you can see the views, and, and the viewers spike about 10 to 15 minutes into worship. And we laugh because it's just like if we were hosting physical church, but the same people that would have been late there are still late, even though all they got to do is maybe turn from the kitchen and take a couple steps to the couch, right? There's no helping that inclination to be late. And there are a few areas in life where it should be your goal to be late, like it should be your aim to be late. But one place you should definitely be late is when you're in a discussion and you're ready to push back. When you're itching to respond to your spouse or, or make your counter argument, be late. There's a proverb that echoes what we read in James and it's Proverbs 29:20, 20, where it says, do you see a man who speaks in haste? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And this verse is bigger than the old adage your mom used to tell you, right? Think before you speak. It's also about making sure People actually care about what you have to say when you speak. Because if you want people to not care about a single word you have to say, show them that you don't care. Be quick to speak. Be slow to listen. Don't care about their side. And that's a guarantee. People will care about what you have to say when they know that you care about them. How do you do that? Be quick to listen and slow to speak. Right, James hold up the, holds up these two opposites, speaking and listening, opening up our mouth versus opening up our ears. And so far, the focus is being measured in our speech and studious in our listening. Because if you're faithful in that, then again, the next part, which seems hard at first, becomes a lot easier. And that is to simply be slow to become angry. You know, many a theologian and commentary compares the book of James to the Old Testament wisdom scriptures, which is Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and so on. And and as we talk about anger, I should take note that in the Old Testament wisdom literature, where there's often juxtapositions of of the wise and the fool, anger is always, without exception, 100% of the time tied to foolishness. And Ecclesiastes 7.9 is a great verse for our outrage-addicted culture because it says, don't be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Now, will you feel anger in life? Absolutely, right? Is that a sin? No. Is, is righteous anger a thing? Yes. But Ecclesiastes 
7, 9 says this anger, it can't take residence in us. We have to let it go. We can't hold on to it. And Ecclesiastes 7, 9 also echoes these words of James that we shouldn't be quick to get angry. We shouldn't have a, a short fuse and thin skin that just wants to duel and duke it out like Andrew Jackson. As we'll look at in the weeks to come, James continues in James 3. And there are, he says that there are a few things more destructive than words, especially words that are spoken in anger. You know, Alfred Noble was the man who invented dynamite, right? And he had the vision that it would be used to clear terrain for roads and bridges and, and make way for construction where there's rough terrain. But within a matter of just a few years, it had been weaponized and militarized. And this invention that he created with a vision for construction was being used for destruction and even death and murder. And he lamented this reality so much and he mourned this reality that his legacy was tied to this so much that it's why he established the Nobel Peace Prize. He wanted his name to be tied to something that was constructive rather than destructive. And why do I share this? Because when we look at what James is saying, there are explosives in your palate. There is TNT on your tongue. And like dynamite, your words can be constructive and used to build people up, or they can be destructive. And when your words are given to anger, they're weaponized. And this is why James tells us to be slow to become angry when addressing our words and our mouth. But to pivot off dynamite sticks, can consider this other kind of stick, a talking stick. What's the talking stick? Well, it's been around for centuries in Native American culture. You see, in this culture, when the atmosphere would become tense, when conflict was in the air and two tribes seemed at an impasse and on the brink of war, they would come together and they would break out the talking stick. And in this meeting, only the person with the stick could talk. Right? And they would share and they would share their perspective. And, and maybe they would pass the stick to somebody who could uh, uh, deepen their perspective and share their perspective and, and what they were feeling and what their situation was. And only at the point where they felt they had been heard, they had been understood, would they pass the stick to the next person. See, this practice was so effective in disarming situations because it, it understood what's at the heart of James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. That the more you listen, the more you'll learn. That the more you listen, the more you can empathize with another person's situation, with their feelings, with their humanity. Right? And when you, when you can empathize with somebody's humanity, it's not going to be easy to become angry with them. Now notice, understanding someone else's perspective when using the talking stick comes before making my point. And it's because the goal isn't to change minds. The goal isn't for me to be right and you to be wrong, but to make things right. The talking stick realizes that an informed perspective can produce empathy and it will in turn produce unity. And all of these things that James is saying in, in James chapter one and beyond, they carry a heavier weight when you realize what he was addressing in the church. The church at the time that James wrote this letter had become divided on, on all kinds of fronts, whether it was racial with Jews and Gentiles or it was socioeconomic with the privileged and, and those in poverty. And you look around God's church today, we're still divided on all kinds of fronts, whether it's, it's, it's doctrinal or cultural. 
It, it might be political, socioeconomic, racial, but instead of Jew and Gentile, it's black and white. And if the church is ever going to overcome division with diversity and walking in the unity that God desires, it's going to take people who are slow to speak and quick to listen. It's going to take people of one culture, often the predominant culture, passing off the talking stick and asking the question, what else don't I know? What else don't I yet understand? Being slow to speak and quick to listen. Because listening produces empathy and empathy will produce unity. I mean, just think about the way that we often talk about those who vote differently or behave differently or think differently than, than we do personally. We ask questions like, how could they do that? How could they say that? How could they be all right with this? Or how could they do fill in the blank and still call themselves a Christian? And we don't necessarily present these questions as genuine questions. Right? They're declarations we make and then we return to our echo chambers and our hall of mirrors. But the fact that they're in the form of a question is telling because it means we don't know. And life 101, if you don't know something, ask the question. You know, we often grossly overestimate how much we know about other people and situations that we haven't even walked in. There's a great proverb again, Proverb 18, 17, that says the first to speak in court sounds right until the cross-examination begins. And I share that because in the court of Justin White, right, you know who always gets the first hearing? You know who always gets their perspective shared first? That's easy, me. And it's not just even my problems with people I'm unfamiliar with uh, out in the culture or in the body of Christ. It's with some of the people I'm most familiar with, like my own bride. Again, I'm always the first to speak in my own court, which means I have my closing statement and my judgment locked and loaded before Steph can ever give her side of the perspective. I can establish a narrative, have my storyline all cooked up and start getting fired up and sliding into anger based on it before I ever hear Steph's side of the story. And that's why the concept of the talking stick is so useful. It's why James is telling us that we can avoid anger by being quick to listen and slow to speak. And then James hands us our second juxtaposition. He juxtaposes this anger that we so easily can slide into with the righteousness that God desires in us. He says anger doesn't produce the righteousness that God desires. See, when the focus, it's not reconciliation, but it's about being right. What's the root? Certainly not the righteousness God desires. It's, it's, it's self-righteousness. Oh, I know I'm right. I want you to know I'm right. I want everybody to know that I'm right. But James would say, look, that's not the right right. I'm going to say it again. That's not the right right. We're concerned with looking right. God wants us to be concerned with loving right. And that means that our concern, our chief concern and our focus isn't being right at one another or versus one another. The chief concern for us becomes being right with one another because we aren't called to duel. <laughs> We're called to reconcile. So the questions practically as we apply this that flow from this passage in James in disagreements. Am I more focused on being right at someone or being right with them? In conversations with my spouse, am I more concerned with being right or being reconciled? 
in conversations within the bride of Christ? Am I more concerned with being right or making things right? In political disagreements, do I, like the seventh president of the United States, impulsively duel or am I slow to speak and quick to listen? Our words matter. There's TNT on your tongue. And anger weaponizes our words, but righteousness will use it to construct the bridges and roads that make reconciliation possible. But to close, we got to look at verse 21. And it's where James writes, therefore, basically saying now that the goal is clear, not winning arguments, but winning people. Therefore, here's the conclusion. Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save your soul. And this is noteworthy because in our impulse to duel and duke it out and be right and prove those people wrong, it's often this this stance of us versus them. The immorality in the world, the, the problems with the world, the evil in the world, it's always out there and it's very rarely in us, in me and in you. But when we can remember that God has made things right with us, even when we were in sin, we can let go of being right and our self-righteousness, and focus on the perspective of God making things right with others. You see, when James says get rid of evil, the Greek word speaks of malice or a desire to get back or pay back, which is so prevalent in our tit-for-tat culture where we want to dunk on everybody and drag everybody. And James is saying, when you find yourself itching to win an exchange, itching to be right out of self-righteousness, Shut it down. Get rid of that impulse because we're no longer called to win or lose based on those terms. We're no longer playing that game. Jesus removed that playing board entirely. We're no longer called to win or lose on those terms by those rules. He's given us a completely new way to live. One that's not concerned with being right. One that's concerned with being reconciled. One that's not as concerned with winning arguments as it is concerned with winning people. You know, I came to a point a long time ago where I'm no longer concerned with out arguing people with my apologetics or or drowning them in the validity of my beliefs and pinning them to the mat with with my wisdom in such prolific fashion that they've got no choice but to accept Jesus Christ as Lord. Because I've been around the block enough times to know that that's not how it works. And those personal wins, they're often spiritual losses. I don't change people. That's God's deal. I'm called to love them. And do you know how much pressure that relieves? When when you can relinquish your right to being right and just focus on reconciliation. You know how many duels I can walk away from and not waste my time on? And this isn't about cowardice or conflict avoidance. But relinquishing my right to be right all the time and prove others wrong is often the first step towards reconciliation. Let's just be plain. The first step towards healthy relationships. And this isn't just about horizontal reconciliation. It's also about vertical reconciliation with me and God and that person and God. And James is saying that in order to do that, we have to put away malice and, and the need to pay back or, or, or prove that I'm right and you're wrong. Because my goal isn't to change people by proving that they're in the wrong. My goal is to introduce them to the God who's already reaching out to them right where they are. Right? Who already died for you and for me while we were still sinners. 
You know, the last part of our passage tonight says that his word planted in you can save your soul. The implication for us, the application for us is may our words usher people toward the word that saves Jesus Christ. There is TNT on your tongue and on my tongue. May we not let the enemy weaponize our words. May the dynamite in our words make way for the roads and the bridges that the Holy Spirit can walk over to change people's hearts and change people's lives. I need that. You need that. The world needs that. And if these words tonight have awakened in your heart the need for Jesus Christ, the the need to be saved, if you've never let his word be planted in you or you've never known Jesus as king or savior or God as father, then man, make that prayer tonight. There's going to be a box that opens up over here that gives you the option of of accepting the Lord as Savior. And and you can take another step and receive prayer because we'd love to rally around you. We'd love to resource you because we firmly believe that that decision is the most important, significant decision you will ever make. So if that's you, take that step. We'd love to pray for you. But let me pray for all of us tonight as we close. Lord God, we thank you that reconciliation, the vertical reconciliation and justification that we desperately need with you. It's not through our efforts. It's not through our trying harder. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works. We can't boast no matter how hard we try. And we thank you for your grace, Lord God. And God, we know that you also call us to sanctification, to look more like Jesus day by day. And we know that one place that we haven't arrived and we may never arrive this side of heaven is with our words. So, God, we ask that the same way that we ask you to be Lord over our heart, be Lord over our lips. The same way we want you to transform our heart, transform our mouth and let our words be the words that usher people to the word that saves Help our words, our lives, our church, our communication, our conversations, our relationships bring you glory, Jesus Christ, because we love you and we praise you and we worship you not just here in online church, but in our lives. We do it to your glory in Jesus name. Amen. See you next week. What an incredible word from Pastor Justin. We hope that you are challenged and encouraged as you are watching tonight. This new series, Me and My Big Mouth, is only just getting started. So make sure to tune in again next week and invite some friends. You can find tonight's and all of our online services as well as additional content on our YouTube page. If you visit, be sure to like and subscribe. Thanks for joining us tonight and we hope to see you again next week.